I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot of what China does is not about engaging in conversation. I sometimes say that Russian trolls uh, care about what you think of your neighbor. Chinese trolls only care about what's important to China. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm David Andrews. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Today I'm joined by Darren Linville from Clemson University in South Carolina, and Will Grant from the Australian National University, to discuss online disinformation and social media forensics. Darren is an Associate Professor and Co-Director of the Clemson University Media Forensics Hub, and he studies state-affiliated social media information operations. Will is Associate Professor in Science Communication at the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at ANU. Welcome, Darren and Will. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. Thank you. Darren, I think I'll I'll start with you as our uh, guest from across the oceans, but I'm sure many people will be wondering, what is social media forensics? So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about uh, about that field of research and, and your work with the Media Forensics Hub. Sure. The, the Media Forensics Hub at Clemson uh, uses open source investigations techniques. That's, you know, non-classified information available uh, primarily on the web to try to understand the, the strategy and tactics of bad actors and to work at understanding the authenticity of information that your digital information that you're finding on the web. So is this image what it purports to be? Is it where it purports to be? Uh, is this account uh, or individual a real person? Is this group of accounts uh, working in collaboration with one another? Are they authentic? Are they inauthentic? That sort of thing. So uh, we work with our undergraduates to teach them some of these techniques. Uh, we work with um, other professors at other universities to develop new techniques. And, and you know, we try to share a lot of what we learn with the social media platforms, uh, with folks in the government. And that's what I'm here do, doing here in Australia as well, is, is collaborating with uh, colleagues at uh, Queensland University of Technology and, and here at ANU. Great. Thanks so much for being here. It's great to have you with us. And I understand that Will, you and Darren have done some work together in the past. Is that right? Yes, uh, we have. So uh, we met a few years ago and uh, I'm, I'm interested in social media and I'm, uh, from a science perspective, very interested in how uh, misinformation, uh, which is disinformation's slightly nicer little sister. So disinformation is deliberate. Misinformation is just stuff that's not true, um, spreads through social media. 
And one of the things that I'm super interested in is that uh, a lot of misinformation about science uh, is spread through social media. And so we did some work looking at some of the Russia tweets, uh, seeing seeing how we could categorize those. These are Russia tweets coming uh, from the Internet Research Agency that Darren will explain more in a bit. Uh, and, and looking at what components of them might be directed about uh, destabilizing people's ideas about uh, vaccines or climate change or other topics like that of controversial science. Okay, wonderful. Um, and you just touched on, Will, the difference between disinformation and, and misinformation. And and perhaps that's useful for us just to sort of dig a little bit more into for those that might not be aware and might see the words in the newspaper and think that all sounds a little bit a little bit complicated. Um, so, Darren, perhaps could you could embellish a little bit more for us that distinction between disinformation and misinformation uh, and perhaps is one more of a threat than the other or are they comparable in terms of their impact? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's really a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap between the two. Uh, disinformation is information that's wrong and, and purposefully wrong and purposely spread. Uh, so, for instance, the, the work of the Internet Research Agency, other uh, bad actors, Chinese disinformation, Venezuelan disinformation, uh, they're, they're, they're spreading falsehoods and, and they're doing it purposely, usually with some agenda in mind, whereas misinformation is just anyone spreading any information that is incorrect. And so disinformation can sometimes become misinformation depending on who's actually sharing the message. Uh, if you if if, you know, the the the, the many you know, normal users of, of social media around the world that hit retweet on a Russian tweet back in 2016 or all the way through 2020, uh, were spreading misinformation often just by hitting retweet on, on information that they had no reason to doubt, but was in fact, uh, you know, disinformation in its roots. One of the things you can, you can add to that is, well, that disinformation clearly, if it's spread for deliberate harms, uh, you know, as, as Darren's just saying, there are bad actors that are spreading false information for deliberate purposes. Misinformation too can be also super harmful. Um, I often talk about examples of misinformation that spread at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, you might all remember stories of uh, people in Iran drinking industrial alcohol, thinking it was a, um, it was a cure to COVID. Uh, obviously wasn't. And led to hundreds and hundreds of deaths. So they might, they're, they're clearly related problems of, of problematic information spreading through the ecosystem that, uh, is worth coming together to try to solve. And, and it's, and it's a problem that social media, you know, it's not unique to social media, but it's certainly a, a problem that's exacerbated by social media because information just moves so quickly on social media. Often, uh, the misinformation spreads faster than facts can keep up as as we know they that happened with the pandemic i think it's uh, a feature in in twitter at any at any rate uh, jumps to mind for me which is the i think in recent in the last couple of years there was that notification that would pop up when you retweeted something or quote tweeted something you know do you want to read the article first right. <laughs> which um strikes me as a, as a pretty deliberate um technical attempt to try and uh, sort of pull back on some of those measures. And I'm, I'm not sure how much Mr. Musk is necessarily uh, keeping some of those factors in place, but I think it, it points to that, uh, that that very point you've made about the the constant repetitive cycling nature of social media and the way it can so rapidly spread. One other uh, word I just wanted to get some clarity on, because I feel it's perhaps misused or, or used in quite a broad brush sense, is the concept of, a, of an internet troll. And I think we often might apply that 
word sort of pejoratively to an individual um, who is sort of badgering someone online or, or just being a bit annoying. But then we also talk about troll farms or factories and so this large scale system. So um, are both of them fair uses of the term? I, what, what would you think of uh, technically speaking as researchers um, looking at that? Yeah, it, it is a word that you really have to pay attention to the context to, to understand how somebody's using it. And, and, and uh, it does come originally from people that are just annoying on social media. Um, but more and more you see it being used as, as, in fact, I use it as an almost technical term when I'm talking about inauthentic accounts online. And, and it may be the case that, you know, you have a, a farm of people um, that are that are running a number of accounts and, and you'll have, you know, a, a room full of, of people uh, running social media accounts. But uh, it, it's it's absolutely important to differentiate between a, a troll, which is an account run by a real person, and a bot, which is an account that's uh, wholly or at least mostly automated. One of the things I've always found fascinating in your work as well, Darren, is that um, there are clear overlaps in terms of strategy and tactics because, you know, we look at this from a communications perspective and thinking about how people use communication in a strategic way to achieve ends. And for both the individual troll and for the the mass, the farm troll, uh, wherever in the internet research agency or anywhere, uh, there are similar overlapping ways of using disingenuous communication uh, to achieve a certain end. Sure, the farms involve a whole lot more people and a whole lot more strategic uses, but there is definitely an overlap in using certain fo- forms of questioning, certain forms of assertion to make people think differently. Yeah, I, I certainly got the sense... You know, I, I've read Russian IRA tweets until my eyes have bled, and I've certainly got the sense from reading some of them that you know maybe maybe they got their start in their mom's basement as an old fashioned troll, and and that got them the job working for the IRA. Look, and maybe maybe it's just that is the form of communication that works well on the internet. Like it is, you know, the internet privileges or, or allows anonymous forms of communication, like we we just didn't have um, in older media. Uh, so now people can say things anonymously. They they can say it quickly. They can dive into mentions. They can do all sorts of things like that. So perhaps this form of communication grew up with the internet. And whether whether that person graduated from basement to uh, to factory, or whether the people planning the factory said, "All right, well, let's use the tactics of the people in the basement." There's clearly a strong overlap between the two. And, and there's just a way of speaking in many online communities that that if you if you don't engage in that way you'll you'll stand out and and you know you won't you won't get the retweets you won't get the followers you won't get the uh the the impressions so a, a group you've both mentioned a few times now is the uh, the internet research agency which to my understanding is um a part of the russian state that is focused on this sort of uh, disinformation work and i think it was actually um uh, some comment was made in the, in the news recently that turns out that the head of the Wagner group um, is actually the sort of the originator or founder of this organization. Um, so perhaps you could tell us a bit more about the, particularly the Russian disinformation process, because they seem to be the, at least by reputation, sort of the, the world leaders in these state-sponsored disinformation campaigns. Yeah, the, the Internet Research Agency dates back to uh, early 2014. You're right, it is an, it's, uh, an organization that uh, is owned by Yevgeny Prigozhin. Putin's chef, uh, as he's sometimes called. 
um, at the, the owner of the Wagner Group. And they got their start trolling like the Chinese did, have done uh, and the, the, the Venezuelans have done and other groups. They got their start trolling domestically, so, so trolling their fellow Russians uh, as well as Ukrainians in 2014. And then somewhere in early, early to mid 2015, they started, you know, looking abroad and uh, trolling other nations, specifically the United States. Um, but, you know, the, the, the broader West as well. They had a number of accounts that were engaging in French and German. Uh, they trolled on issues affecting Australia, uh, affecting the UK. Certainly they, they communicate a lot about Brexit. Um, and they, they got really, really good at their job. Uh, they, they had accounts that, uh, you know, had hundreds of thousands of followers, millions of mentions in the run up to the 2016 election. Um, and fundamentally they were working to divide the West, uh, and polarize our conversations and, and make it harder for democracies to function. I think fundamentally even more fundamentally than that, they were working to make it easier for Putin to uh, work with a more free hand in Russia. They wanted to make sure that the, the Russian people didn't look to the West and think that the grass was greener on the other side, that, you know, thing, things were better there. Um, because as long as they, you know, maybe things aren't perfect in Russia, sure. But as long as they also weren't perfect in the West, then maybe, people, you know, the Russian people will just be satisfied. Um, and uh, certainly it was it was the perspective of uh, <laughs> of the Kremlin that the that the Internet Research Agency had done a good job because um, after 2016, they moved into a much bigger office. Can I just add to this? I think I think uh, it's fascinating to see this history because it has clear uh, precedence in Soviet action during the Cold War. Uh, so in the 1970s and 1980s, there were clearly KGB attempts, particularly aimed at America, but aimed at other countries around the world, some in Africa, some in India as well, to sow forms of disinformation that would lead to community unrest. So they, they, they definitely tried to, to polarize America more during the civil rights movement. Uh, they definitely tried to sow AIDS denialism, uh, in the, in the 1980s to undermine you know, uh, undermine shared institutions, shared trust in institutions. And so while clearly this is a, a new organization, clearly has antecedents that, you know, Putin's thinking in the KGB certainly grew into this sort of uh, arena here. Well, one thing I was going to ask, which I think you've sort of preempted, is the extent to which this is a um, a new phenomenon or one that is really just sort of the newest iteration of a, a more established uh, sort of trend. And I, I was thinking particularly of the 2016 presidential election. Um, and, and I think that's perhaps where some of these processes came more to the public consciousness. Um, and I guess it's maybe notable that, that the IRA was established only a couple of years before that. And there's some interesting overlaps there. Is, is, that, is that maybe a fair characterization that this is just the newest, most prominent version of a more established trend? I, I think that's 100% true. And, what, and what's interesting, if you if you look at the data, if you know, look at the information that, that uh, our lab has released and that, that Twitter has released uh, of what the IRA was doing from um, starting in 2015 in, in targeting foreign conversations and in targeting conversations in English on, t on Twitter specifically, but um, across a number of other platforms, 
uh, you can see that evolution happening and uh, as it was happening. You know, these these broadly speaking, Will's right. These aren't you know brand new tactics. It's it's the evolution of old tactics to to new technologies, and and you could see them learn how to do it. So their their very early efforts in 2015 were really bad. I mean, they they were comically bad. They were trying to convince uh, Americans that there was a, a chemical explosion in Louisiana that never happened or a salmonella outbreak on Thanksgiving of 2015 in upstate New York that that never happened and they were trying to to blame the 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 Koch brothers for it because it was the Koch family farms were responsible for this horrible salmonella outbreak and people were dying. But they got no traction for these stories, and, and they utterly failed, even though they were using, you know, thousands of accounts to try to, to make these stories trend online. Um, because, you know, Americans, we like to pretend that we don't trust our media. But the truth of the matter is, when it comes to did this thing happen, we really do. You know, it, when it comes to is, is there a chemical explosion in Louisiana, we're going to trust CNN on that. Um, and you can see this moment in time in late 2015 where they, they clearly brought in consultants or something. I don't know, but they, they became a marketing company and instead of, you know, just, uh, trying to do exactly the same thing that the GRU had done and, and they, and they really took off quite quickly and got very good at their job. This is the thing though, as communications, people that study communications, that's the thing that social media offers you is you can try so many campaigns whereas maybe you couldn't try so many in older times in traditional media, and you get data all the time. Every single tweet, you can get a little bit of data telling you, okay, this one got more engagement, this one got more retweets, more likes. And so if you're uh, you know, you're bringing those marketing consultants and suddenly you can go, okay, actually, if you want to have impact, we can measure it. We can, we can study all these things all the way along. And this is the same stuff that all of the other corporates are using on social media to try and understand. But it means that they can be far more successful in their um, their efforts to generate the impact that they want. And, and, and what's funny, too, is you can see them engaging in some of these experiments if you look at the data. So there, uh, there's when you look at conversations that the trolls were having about uh, the U.S. presidential debates in the before the 2016 election, there were three presidential debates. And uh, I, I don't remember the order they went, but for one presidential debates, the trolls all uh, tried to engage with real users before the debate. With another uh, debate, they all, you know, tried to engage users during the debate. And with the with the final debate, they all engaged with users after the debate. And it was clear that they were doing it to try to discover what had the best effect. We, where were their as a, efforts as a, most useful? As a communication researcher, it's just so great seeing them doing some actual science, you know, to investigate that you have yeah. a little experimental condition and then you test the different phenomena. You know, they didn't get ethics though. So <laughs> yeah. there's a no-no. Not going to get that published. Right. We'll be right back. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you. 
this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. I don't know if this is an aspect of of, um, what you're just reflecting on there, but I think we've seen perhaps the evolution of um, some of these these sort of fake accounts over time from the original kind of the the Twitter egg that sort of JPG nine digits sort of zero followers and they follow you know a thousand people to perhaps now it's more the uh, sort of Jim or Mary Sue with sort of the the eagle and the flag in the background and equally with zero zero followers and, and lots of people they follow and have you seen things like that the sort of trend in the way that the actual expression or the the, the avatars I guess of these uh, these troll farms are they becoming more sophisticated and complex? It depends on the troll farm, and it depends on the goals. So, uh, it's definitely true that if you if you looked at the work of of the Internet Research Agency, they got far more complex. Um, we you know we developed methods of of tracking their ongoing work and identifying you know active uh, accounts uh, that were active you know during the twenty eighteen midterms in the U S. and the twenty twenty election just before it. Um, and they and they definitely got more sophisticated, and and they were able to accrue followers very quickly. Uh, they had tweets that had hundreds of thousands of likes, tens of thousands of retweets. And you, you told us that story just the other day, Darren, about one of the accounts uh, getting tweet of the week in like an American newspaper. Yeah, the Chicago Tribune. Yeah, yeah you know, our, a big one. Yeah, yeah, not, a not small paper. Uh, yeah, the one of these trolls won the tweet of the week contest in in October of 2018 from the Chicago Tribune, voted on by the by the readers of the Chicago Tribune. Uh, I believe the tweet was uh, uh, making fun of Trump in a uh, in a book is unfair. It's like making fun of the Amish on television. Yeah, that's a good tweet. It's a good tweet. That's yeah. a good tweet. It's a solid tweet. Uh, and and. But, you know, it wasn't just their, their content that they got more sophisticated with. In 2020, they started using – actually, in 2018, they started using uh, computer-generated profile images. So profile images that weren't real people. Um, you, can, you can make your own computer-generated profile image if you just go to thispersondoesnotexist.com. Uh, or, or you can get a, a, a cat that doesn't exist at thiscatdoesnotexist.com. And, and, and the Russians know this, and they use these tools to, uh, to create pro- profiles that are fake. But – uh, you know, just because that's what the Russians are, are doing and have done, you, you know, engaging in this very artisanal development and accrual of of followers over time and then using those followers. And they and they were very good at it. Just to clarify, they're the hipsters of disinformation they campaigns. Are, that's exactly what okay. I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, at, that just because that's what the Russians are good at doesn't mean that everybody's following the Russian playbook. If you if you look at other nations, especially China, what they're doing uh, what China is doing is very different than what Russia has done in the past. So speaking of China, I think that's maybe a useful sort of segue into uh, perhaps something that people in Australia or in our part of the world are maybe worried a little bit more about than than Russia. Maybe that's um, unwise. We should be concerned more about what the Russians are doing as well in this space. But um, how 
how do the the methods or the practices that are employed by by Russia compare to those that are used by China that you've observed? It it's absolute apples and oranges. Um, now there are some similarities. You know, China relies very heavily on state media in the in the same way that Russia does. You know, Russia has Sputnik and RT, and and China has Global Times and and, and other platforms. And um, and really, you know, on a dollar for dollar basis, the you know this is the core of their 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 propaganda, uh, targeting uh, especially English speaking populations, but but elsewhere as well. And in uh, you know, RT is one of the fastest growing uh, media groups in Latin America, for instance. Um, so you know, there there are some definite similarities, but. A lot of what China does is not about engaging in conversation. They're not trying to persuade individuals. So if you look at, you know, a, a Chinese troll account, it does look what, like what you had said, you know, a, a, a okay. random name with a random string of numbers after it and a really unlikely looking profile image. Uh, you know, they, they look fake on the surface, you know, no followers, no following. Um, but what they're trying to do isn't the same thing. They're trying to make sure conversations don't happen. So I, I sometimes say that Russian trolls, uh, care about what you think of your neighbor. Uh, China, Chinese trolls only care about what's important to China. Um, and so they will often flood conversations. So conversations, uh, especially about things like, what's happening in Xinjiang with the Uyghur minorities or uh, what's happening around uh, specific stories about China. So there's a recent story about um, Chinese global policing, you know, China running police uh, centers in cities around the United States or around the world, not just the United States. Uh, These are focused on Chinese citizens yes, that are, um, yeah. in other countries. Tar targeting Chinese expats and Chinese citizens abroad and the, and the Chinese diaspora. And they will, you know, flood conversations and the hashtags that people use to have these conversations to make it harder for those conversations to happen. So famously, the it's actually, uh, to my knowledge, K-pop fans that did this <laughs> for the first time, I think, back in uh 2019 or so around uh, the hashtag white lives matter i think it was uh, the hashtag white lives matter was trending during black lives matter protests in the united states and 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 k-pop fans took that hashtag over so that it, it couldn't be used for racist reasons but it was just being used to talk about k-pop and the chinese do that but you know they will use hashtag uyghur genocide and and just tell you about how wonderful and beautiful things are in in uh, Xinjiang and, and how clean and, and lovely the cotton is in Xinjiang. And, and there's no, you know, absolutely no uh, uh, forced labor going into the, to the, to the, to the, to the cotton industry in, in, in Xinjiang. Um, I, I think it's likely that there's also algorithmic goals for this. You know, Twitter and other platforms aren't going to tell us the, the algorithmic effect on it. But I think, I think it's likely that these types of tactics – uh, you know, suppress the potential of these hashtags trending. Um, but yeah, you'll see Chinese trolls constantly using hashtags that are utterly counterintuitive. So in the in the run up to the to the Beijing Olympics, for instance, thousands of Chinese troll accounts were using hashtag genocide games. 
which is a which is you know a lovely little hashtag. It's it's got alliteration. Uh, it 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 combines m- multiple concepts into one condensed uh, message, uh, and and. I, th- I think it's very likely that the chi- I, I could st- I watched it in real time as real users started using genocide games and then the Chinese troll accounts inserted themselves into these conversations with the hashtag and then the hashtag just kind of slowly disappeared and the only people you saw using it were the were the Chinese trolls so uh, it's and it's not just issues that they do this with they also do it with with people you see them flooding uh, especially Chinese expats. Um, and Chinese dissidents abroad, they will create a thousand versions of of that person's social media account um, on multiple platforms, so that you know you can't tell who the real Chinese dissident is uh, on social media. Um, and it's it's scary when you see this happen in mass because it's it's clearly something they've invested in, and and like the Russians, I'm sure it's something that they've they've you know, tested in control, in, in, in controlled tests. And now, of course, with, at least on, on Twitter, as, as sort of the common example, you know, the verification changes means that people who could perhaps have relied on that as a way of distinguishing themselves from the, the fake accounts and now just someone that pays $8 a month can yeah, absolutely. say what they want. Absolutely. They? Well, hence all of those other trolls, the basement trolls, spending uh, quite a bit of time on Twitter pretending to be Official government accounts on NASA or something like that to tweet things that uh, they otherwise wouldn't. So, you know. Yeah, maybe one day Elon will be making a lot of money off of Chinese troll accounts, spending their $8 a month. Well, we've spoken quite a bit about the state-based uh, or sort of, I guess, state-related approaches to disinformation and misinformation. But um, are there more domestically oriented models of this as well, uh, whether it's sort of issue-motivated groups or just individuals? Are there ways that these techniques are employed for still malign intent, but um, in more sort of compressed contexts? Look, I think there's a couple of um, really interesting examples here. Uh, Darren was telling some good stories uh, to me yesterday about the Cat Turd 2 account. I know that's not a a thing that's normally discussed here. Uh, Very much focused on domestic politics in America. Um, But you can also see a number of similar sorts of accounts uh, here in Australia that are not necessarily aimed um, at destabilization, but but at pushing their particular political uh, orientation. So you will you will absolutely get accounts that are pushing a left or a right perspective, and using a variety of the techniques to. Uh, show things in a certain light, to frame issues in a certain way or to take pictures in a certain way that will get communities involved. Um, so, you know, uh, one of the stories that Darren was telling is, uh, what is it, the um, Biden's- uh, Bear Shelves Biden. Bear yeah. Shelves Biden. And you can, you know, if you show a lot of pictures uh, and and tweet regularly about them and get people to engage with them and then get a community around that, then you can develop a following for that, even if it is not necessarily true. So it is quite easy in social media to turn what might be objectively a very minor story, you know, or even a non-story into something that people believe might be true if they already want to. And this is this is one of the interesting things that we're studying as well in disinformation is that to to spread further 
much disinformation needs fertile ground. It needs a fertile ground of people who are ready to believe that or want to push it further. And so here in Australia, for example, you'll get people on the far left, far right, uh, other sorts of places who will definitely take up forms of disinformation and say, well, this agrees with my agenda. So I'm going to, I'm going to retweet that further. I'm going to develop a community around that. I, I think this, uh, this account that, that Will was talking about, this cat turd two, not to be confused with cat turd one. Mm. Uh, really points to what we were talking about earlier too w- about the 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 differences in in that you, we see with social media uh, as compared to old ways of spreading propaganda um, and traditional media in particular that you know a, a, this this account has five hundred thousand followers on on Twitter um, and growing influence on other platforms and it's turned the idea of credibility on its on its head, um, it now has a blue check mark, and the New York Times does not. Uh, this account cat turd too, and it and it gets tens of thousands of uh, likes and retweets and other forms of engagement, um, and can really ultimately shape the messaging of, of traditional media. So if if cat turd too decides wakes up, you know, one morning and decides, oh, I'm going to make a story trend. That account is capable of doing that, um, and it's and it's just a person, and you know, and, and that's the type of person that would name their account Cat Turd Two. Perhaps we'll um, just for the local audience. Um, I thought I'd reflect on some of our uh, the Australian experience of COVID in particular. I think that's one a pretty ripe area for for both misinformation and disinformation. Um, we've both had, we had the convoy to Canberra that the, the good residents of the ACT were, were thrilled to receive, uh, as well as the wider questions around lockdowns and vaccines and origins of the virus and all these sorts of things. Um, as a science communicator and as you know, someone working in this space, um, what sort of reflections do you have on, on the Australian experience of this? Look, I think I think there's there's a lot of things to say here. One is we do we do have similar-ish politics to what is going on in America, but we are not in that place um, where America is. But there are there are definitely efforts uh, by a variety of people to import uh, political issues from outside uh, to whip up different sorts of fervor. I think I think if we turn directly to COVID. And the sorts of politics that we saw during that time, there was definitely a fertile ground. There were a lot of people who felt the lockdowns were pretty rough. And I think whether you support them or not, you could find them pretty rough. There are a lot of people who thought maybe they were too far and that vaccine mandates were not something that they supported. So there was fertile ground at that point for a lot of people to drift into more libertarian styles of politics than they might have thought about in 2019. But with that also came a lot of people that then perhaps developed um, uh, a more credulous approach to, to the news. And so where, where those people might have said, well, I don't like the lockdown, then they're getting ideas of, okay, these are the, uh, the vaccines are microchips from Bill Gates or the vaccines are uh, to control us or they don't work or they date, all of those kinds of things. They spread on fertile ground. But absolutely, uh, when you get um, groups of people that come together and there are forms of, uh, we'll call it at least misinformation at the moment, uh, that seek to destabilise uh, what had previously been sort of middle of the road government messaging. So vaccines are good, which is supported by, you know, 
all mainstream science and and all mainstream political parties. So the message that uh, vaccines are problematic did find fertile ground amongst these sorts of people and then pulls them to more marginal communities. So I think it's doing a few things. It's uh, destabilizing for many countries in in the West sort of um, the institutions of trust of which we hope science is one and we hope, you know, the sort of middle of the road government agencies, Department of Health, we kind of hope those are one. And so there is there is that destabilization of those institutions of trust and people become more polarized out to far left or far right or far other uh, sorts of perspectives. So I think we're, you know, we are definitely in a place that is, um, well, was ripe for that. I don't know if that stays in 2022, 2023, but clearly social media does have a big impact on our politics and will into the future. Yeah, I, I do want to say, Will, you're, you're not as bad as the United States yet. Look, and that's, that is always the huge question for those of us following, uh, following domestic politics here in Australia or in any country, because, you know, as many have said, where goes the US, we, we, we will follow. And so there is certainly efforts to, you know, you can see, uh, in the US right now, uh, whipping up more fervor around uh, trans issues and LGBTQI. Uh, there's a few more attempts to do that in other countries. So we've seen that in the UK and, and, and Australia. And now it's not a direct import, but what that is doing is, is perhaps polarizing different countries. Now, um, polarization for those people who are on the, the extreme that's their goal because that that makes them more likely to have impact and power. But there are other people that like polarization for what it does to to countries, and that's clearly the the Russian effort. Yeah, I mean, it's a simple fact that uh, one obvious thing about social media uh, that affects this entire conversation is it, is it, it doesn't have national boundaries. Uh, you know, the Russians, for instance, when they were targeting conversations in Australia or in the UK, they were using the same English speaking accounts. They didn't, they didn't create persona that were pretending to be British or persona that were pretending to be Australian. They were using the same English language accounts that they were uh, using to target the Americans. Um, and, and many of these conversations are, are increasingly becoming global conversations, even on social media. So that's just one example related to go ahead, I was just going to, just going to add, I think, you know, your listeners would be, you know, Often used to thinking about the big geopolitics, you know, buying submarines or, 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 you know, the, the international race for microchips, you know, and how we move energy around the world. And, you know, the, the geopolitical conflict between China and the US. Of course, you know, that frames a lot of what is going on. But I think all of these issues do weave in together, you know, as, as Australia plays a certain role. Uh, as we move in a certain direction, then there are global efforts that are that might push back against that. So I think, yes, we can look at this and say, okay, part of this is a social media problem. But I think actually, and that's that's um, the correct thing from Darren's perspective is, if you only study misinformation or or disinformation from a social media perspective, then you're missing out on the on the fact that absolutely there are deliberate actors that are using this for certain sorts of ends. I think. Uh- Certainly that, that internationalized, globalized form of communication uh, was resonates with me in terms of all of the big figures that we see in the um, who, whether willingly or, or uh, unintentionally spread some of these uh, these points of misinformation, whether it's the sort of the Joe Rogans or um, 
uh, sort of Andrew Tates and those sort of characters of the world who have a global following uh, and also build a pretty tidy income off the back of uh, of spreading these these mistruths. And I think in that sense, often in Australia, we might pat ourselves on the back and say, no, 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 we're much more sort of communitarian. We're not quite as libertarian. We have a different political system. It's not not the same as America, which at one level is true. But as you say, Darren, it, it's not that's not a fixed reality. And especially as these communicators, for want of a better word, these people who are spreading these messages um, for their own reasons, uh, that's speaking to g- different generations and different groups of people in a way that doesn't respect the Westminster system or you know or a presidential election. It's it's much more pervasive than that. Yeah, there are plenty of fans of Alex Jones and and QAnon in Australia. Hmm. Uh, and 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 to that broader point too, David, I think it's important to point out that you know the the most common form of fi- of troll account on social media, of a fake account on social media, is is really just an account trying to steal your money. Um, as, as as has probably been the case with past technologies uh, spreading propaganda as well, is is that you know and and a lot of the accounts responsible for for spreading disinformation are are really just accounts trying to take your money in one form or another, whether it's selling vitamins or, or selling T-shirts, uh, they just want your money. One of, one of the other ones that I just wanted to add into in terms of uh, the ways that these conversations are clearly global, you know, who is the the worst Australian terrorist in recent years? You know, we don't spend enough time, but uh, he went and did did terrible things in New Zealand. And clearly that forms a pattern of global misogynistic violence. So there are clearly people like him who are reading the forums. Maybe it's Andrew Tate. Maybe it's in other places. I don't know where they are reading these things. But there is um, Islamophobic, um, anti-trans, misogynistic sorts of um, sorts of hate that is clearly getting people to take up arms and do terrible things. And that's spreading absolutely globally. And so while we may not shift the center of our politics, maybe that doesn't change. Um, there are certainly very fringe people that are becoming uh, weaponized or or um, who are turning to forms of violence that I don't think they would have done in in years gone by. Well, certainly in the case of of that individual who I think we'll elect not to name, um, uh, who went to New Zealand and and carried out those attacks, uh, his actions then subsequently flowed on and inspired others, I believe, in Norway to do similar things. So it's just an example of that sort of continuing spiral of the way these things interact. Um, but I thought before we before we finish, um, we shouldn't leave on on quite such a sort of sound somber and downcast note, but actually we need to be um, thinking about perhaps how we respond or what we can do or how we can overcome some of these challenges. So I, I think I'd like to suspect that we need to observe them and understand them and, and work out what the intentions of these actors are and, and and what they might be trying to extract from our communities and our societies. But that doesn't mean we don't have options of our own um, in terms of response and, and sort of building a stronger society. So perhaps um, as, a, as my final question, I might just ask you both to reflect on, well, how can we how can we counter these measures? How can we do better and strengthen our societies in response? Uh, I think it's important to point out that in many respects, we are doing better already. Um, you know, certainly uh, Russia doesn't have the run of the platforms like they did back in 2016 when they were 
literally paying for Facebook ads with rubles. Um, so we, we are doing mar marginally better. I think we're doing marginally better, though, in English language conversations. Uh, I know you told me not to end on a downbeat, but I, I think many of the real dangers that we're not talking about are the disinformation and misinformation spreading in, in the non-English world. Um, and at the end of the day, those conversations are going to affect us in the English language world as well. Um, I think that, you know, some of these issues are addressed because the, the platforms see the conversations that are happening in English as more important um, and the potential of, you know, uh, face harming news coming out about troll operations in targeting Australia or or, or England or, or or the U.S. as as important enough to address. Um, but we, we really need to pay more attention to, to the, to the non-English speaking world because it's, it's just rife with trolls. I think, I think the thing that I'll throw in here is that, um, all of this problem lands in a landscape of declining trust. Throughout the the West, we have we have had for quite a few decades declining trust in governments, and I think that is not a simple thing to just solve. We can't click your fingers and say trust government more, and that's <laughs> that's not what we should do. Um, but speaking from my perspective in the world of of science, and science being a key component of government, that absolutely a thing that we we can and should do more. Is is connect more with communities. If we if we drill directly down into the vaccine issue, uh, the reason that people turned hostile to vaccines is in part because we didn't really do enough work to understand their fears and to build policy around that that said, okay, we understand where you are. Perhaps there are ways to mitigate. Perhaps there are ways to work with you. And I know that government has to move fast sometimes, but there is more that we in the sciences can do, more that we in the sort of uh, public health or the, the wider um, community relations uh, world can do to engage more with communities. So I think there is more that we can all do to talk more and connect more and 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 trust more. So, but that is a big long term project. But if you want to, if you want another solution to uh, our social media giants, maybe we just internationalize them. Maybe just you know instead of instead of allowing corporate behemoths that are that are literally trillion dollar company. Okay, Twitter's not a trillion dollar company, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but many of these companies are huge huge companies. Maybe we should would should recognize the fact that giant monopolies shouldn't be in the hands of tech bros. Maybe they should be in the hands of the wider community itself. Yeah, they are not solving the problem. They, they, they're addressing it to the, to the degree that it, they feel necessary. Um, and at least in the case of some tech bros, even less than that. Well, I think that's a really intriguing note to end on, and I'll leave our listeners to ponder the possibilities of a nationalizing model of, uh, of international social media. But Darren Linville and Will Grant, thank you so much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks, David.